Peace be with you. Uh, I got to, if you got your Bible, get it out. We're going to Exodus, second book of the Bible. Exodus 1, starting in the beginning. Um, turn your Bible on, get it out. I'd love for you to read along. We got some text to get through this morning, which is going to be fun. I'm excited about it. But before we read, I want to give a couple quick little thank you updates, that sort of a thing. One, uh, just on thank you for serving. Thank you for helping and serving and leading with kids, with cleaning, with the music, with hospitality, all the areas. Thanks for your giving. For those of you who continue to give faithfully, thank you so much. Uh, the last couple months, um, we've trending, we're trending in the right direction, which is really good. It's not always like that in the summer, honestly, and so that's been encouraging. We're Actually, we're just 1%, only 1% off target. And so, um, man, thank you for those of you who give. Like, it's a huge deal. And um, if you haven't entered into that discipline, do so. Even if you're like, it's this little bit, it doesn't make much of a difference. Oh, it does. Just read your Bible. See what God does with little things. And so um, thank you so much. And I think over, uh, from our uh, Derek Bradford, our chair, was letting me know that we had four or five, I think, new givers the last two months. You know who you are. I'm actually not looking at you because I don't know who you are. But you're out there. So thank you um, for stepping into that and helping uh, forward the mission. Uh, it's a big, 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 big gift to us. And, and we appreciate it. And I want to always say that thank you for your giving. And um, also, too, as we're going through, we begin this book, Exodus, we begin the exploration of it. We're not going to be able to cover everything that's in it. It's a huge book. Uh, we'll do the best we can with it, but we would encourage you to follow along. There is a reading plan that we kind of broke up in a calendar form. It's on the Connect table. So if you'd like to just kind of power through the book of Exodus, as you would get, because I, I promise you, you will get more out of it if you'll read it and come in each week and say, all right, I... I don't understand everything in these two chapters or these three chapters, but I got a, you know, a grasp on it, and you would get more out of it. I would encourage you to do that. And so there is a reading plan for you at the Connect table if you want that as you head out. All right. So um, um, you can stay seated this morning as opposed to standing uh, for the reading because we're reading quite a bit. And so um, I, I really would love for you to just settle in and follow along. Let the text speak to you. Let it, it's just a fascinating story. Um, and so we're going to start in, in chapter 1 at verse 1, and we're going to read through chapter 2, and we're going to stop at verse 10. Okay, so bucket your seat, buckle your seatbelts. Now here's the fascinating thing. Exodus is actually not meant to be a book that you read as a standalone book, like we think of it in our English translation. Um, it's, a, it's really like a chapter in a book. Actually, in the original text, in the Hebrew, the first word of the first line in the book of Exodus is and. Um, so it's actually, you need to think of it as one part of a whole, and the whole being the Torah, the, you know, the first five books of the Bible. And so it's really just a continuation from Genesis. It's like it's never stopped. Um, and so that's how you are meant to read it, even though I know in your English translation here we begin with these. Um, but anyway, so let's go. Let's read this. These are the names of the sons of Israel. That was Jacob, right? Who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Nephtali, God, Gad, and Asher, Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. And then Joseph died. And all his brothers, 
in all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now, that's hyperlinking Genesis. These are the things God told Abraham he would do. Just Now, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore... They set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, (laughs) the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. And so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves in their Lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. And then the king of Egypt, he said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Puah, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. And so the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why why have you done this? And let the male children live. And and the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. And then Pharaoh commanded all his people, so he ups the ante now, well, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Fast forward, chapter 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. And the woman conceived and bore a son, and she saw that he was a fine child, and she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took him, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. And she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young women walked beside the river. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. And when she opened it, She saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. And she took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son, and she named him Moses, because, as she said, I drew him out of the water. This is the word of the Lord. Well done, church. Well done. Isn't that fascinating? I don't even need to preach. It's so good. 
so good. Um, so I've been in um, therapy for, a, I just finished my first year of therapy. You want to clap for me? It's yeah. <laughs> a weird intro, but uh, not for crisis, just for maintenance, <laughs> really. Uh, but anyway, what I do in my therapy, I can't tell you everything I do in my therapy, but one thing I'll tell you is we talk childhood a lot. Like we talk about the past a lot in my time um, that, that I go and, and speak with him. And uh, so we name and we make sense of moments that are sad. You know, we, make, we name and make sense as best we can. We try to connect the dots of the joys of my past, these things, the gifts maybe that I've overlooked, all of that. We're, we're always going back. Because in a nutshell, um, looking back on that and looking into story, how you made sense of the world as a little person in many ways is obviously shaping and guiding the way you're living in the present, right? Um, now, there's a lesson there. The lesson being that sometimes you need to look back to move forward. It's really important to do so. You can't dwell in it. You don't want to live in the past. But you must visit it occasionally, periodically. It helps give you clarity. It helps you give wisdom in the present and also in terms of looking out and moving into the future. Like, for instance, my kids right now are really into Harry Potter books and Harry Potter movies. Don't judge me if you're one of those Christians. Just <laughs> show me grace. Um, over the last 20 years, I think, Harry Potter's been you know, out in the scene. I, 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 didn't, I was not a Harry Potter guy. And so I, I've tried to piece it together, like as I've, I've only seen like bits and pieces of the movies and things like that. And so um, I, I, I thought I got it. I thought I understood it. I thought I understood Harry, you know. I did not understand what was going on. And the thing is, is as I've gone back and had to go to the beginning and read the very first story and watch the very first story, um, The Sorcerer's Stone, I'm, 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 I'm filling in the gaps, right? I'm getting a, a, a bigger piece of the, the story. That, and, and, and so it all makes sense. I'm constantly having these moments of, oh, okay. I understand, Harry. I get it. I get it all now. It's all making sense. See, as we begin this book, uh, Exodus, as we try to explore the book of Exodus, it's a lot like that. You're going back to move forward with depth, with clarity, um, even with speed. Because I would even argue that so much of your New Testament is hyperlinking Exodus. It's constantly making references to it, directly, indirectly. And so you're able to immediately go, oh, I know exactly what they're describing, what they're talking about, what they're, what they're trying to get you to feel. And so Exodus, the word Exodus means going out, exit, departure. Um, it's the story of deliverance. So historically, it's the story of God delivering his people out of slavery and graciously leading them to a place of freedom and rest so that they can worship him. Theologically, though, meaning when I say that, I mean it's spiritual meaning. Exodus is a story of salvation, the why and how it happens through God for us. You could say, you could break down it even further, like in the granular, you can say, man, Exodus, as you read it, it's a story of politics, right? I mean, you, like Genesis is a book about families, moms, dads, 
cousins, sons, daughters. And you get to Exodus, and it's, it's about nations and big groups of people. And so it's a, it's a book about politics. It's, about, it's a book about sin. It's a book about healthy community. It's a book about justice. It's a book about freedom. It's a book about proper worship. It's a book about power and the misuse of power. It's a book about the sanctity and dignity of human life, which is fascinating. That's why it was constantly used, constantly. When uh, Dr. Martin Luther, or uh, uh, MLK Jr. frequently, frequently used Exodus in his sermons and in his writing and in the civil rights movement. And as you'll see, Throughout the journey of the book, it's about Jesus. It's about giving us shape to how to understand him and what he's done for the world and what he's done for you. And that's really the goal, I would say, in the series, as if you stick with it, you track with us. What we want for you is to not just understand the historical significance and beauty of it and how it fits into the whole biblical narrative, but we want you to take it in as your story. It, it, it gives shape to who you are. It gives shape to your own identity. It gives shape to like understanding not only, spiritually speaking, your past, but where you stand right now and where you're headed. It gives it deeper shape, color, significance. You hopefully should have deeper gratitude and clearer direction and conviction about your own life and what God is asking of you and expecting of you. For example, have you ever, do you remember, maybe you currently do it, you probably did it as a child. Do you remember like a story or a, like a film that you grabbed a hold of as a kid? It wasn't expli explicitly about you, but you took it and you said it, it framed your whole meaning of life. You know what I mean? Like Rocky Balboa, like Rocky was mine as a kid. I just did. I just, I just, I watched those films over and over and over again, and it gave shape to how I understood. It was like a lens. Like, I began to see the world through a rocky lens, you know? I mean, it, it, like, it, it really was. It was like, for me, it was like, okay, it's about hard work. Stay humble. You're always going to be outgunned, outmatched, you know? You didn't come from much, right? Humble, poor beginnings, and don't be afraid, and don't back down when it gets hard. So I like really like absorbed that. It like framed how I lived. I just didn't beat up any Russians, but I saw the, my life through that lens. Well, similarly, deeply absorbing Exodus, the Exodus story, can and should provide a lens in which you look at the world. I've, I'm, a, I'm enslaved. I've been rescued. I've been delivered. I, I've been shown what it means to abuse people. And, and I don't want to do that to other people. You understand? And well, you're going to keep learning that. Like, that's the idea behind it. So here's the first lesson, right? The first lesson we get out of these first chapter, chapter and a half that we read. Left to our own, left to our own devices, left to our own strategies as people, life is oppressive. It's slavery, all right? Left to your own, you will be enslaved, Period. Little background on the book is needed. Israel ends up in Egypt of no fault of their own. If you were to read straight through Genesis 1 and just keep reading into Exodus 1 and 2, you will see that. It was a famine that caused Jacob and his sons to travel 
to Egypt and enter in. If there is an exodus, there is an isodus. There's an entry and there's an exit. And that is the theme and the motif of the Bible over and over and over again. God knows that there will be entries and there will be exits through life. And so this famine causes Jacob and his family to end up in Egypt. But there's good graces there because Joseph... His long-lost son, who you know had had a hard, his own story of hardship and slavery, slavery rose through the ranks in, in this foreign land in Egypt, and is ironically second in power in Egypt. And so God encourages actually Jacob to go there. It's not like it's a consequence of bad behavior or something like that. God actually encouraged Jacob to go. And as a matter of fact, you can read in Genesis 46, God says, "Go, go down there. Don't be afraid. I'm going to go with you." But the good circumstances eventually change. Eventually, a new pharaoh has no memory of Joseph or all the good that he's done. Or at minimum, he just has no particular interest in showing loyalty or faithfulness to his heritage, right? And that's kind of where you picked up and started to read. And by this time, the people of Israel have grown from 70 people to thousands of people. Thousands. Then this... New Pharaoh gets, uh, this new Pharaoh gets suspicious and fearful of this multiplying, flourishing people. And they're multiplying and flourishing, as I kind of quickly noted in the reading, because God has already promised to do so. He's promised Abraham back in Genesis 12, I'm going to make you into a family, a nation. Even though at the time, Abraham's like, what? I'm old. We're barren. I don't know how this is going to happen. God is like, I make ways. That's what I do. And this is what he's done. And so Exodus 1 is the unfolding, you could say, of what God had promised to him back in 12, to be a nation. And this nation, this community of people are going to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And so you're seeing that. That's how you're meant to read Exodus 1. And so uh, Pharaoh, of course, doesn't know the promises or plan of God. So he foolishly and ignorantly tries to thwart the plan. And so he enslaves them and he puts them to hard work and has them build cities for Egypt and for their security and for their expansion. Now, this word, the words that is used, and I want you to pick up on it, and I want you to remember, and I, I really don't want you to forget it for the rest of the series because I think it's so important, and I actually think it helps you understand Jesus' interaction with people and Jesus' interaction with you. Because notice in the words, if you picked up in verse 11, uh, down through verse 14, it says, ruthless, heavy burdens, Sound familiar? Remember somebody using words like that? Overwhelmed, tired, are you weary? Ruthless, heavy burdens, bitter, bitter, bitter work. Those words are so important. This is the kind of work or the kind of life that the Israelites were experiencing. Now here's what I want you to see. So we could talk about the politics of all of what's going on there, and we can nerd out there for hours. Well, I can. But here's all I really want you to see for the sake of time. The root, what's underneath it all? The root cause of Israel's slavery was a pharaoh overwhelmed with what? Fear. That's right. Anxiety. Greed. Jealousy. These sorts of things. You can actually see it in the text. He fears these people. They're afraid and dread of them. Why? Because they're having a lot of children? What, is, what are you so fearful of? 
but he fears on the, you know, the future. He, he thinks things are uncertain. Life is about war. It's about security. We'll just use these people. We, we, we'll dehumanize them. We'll crush them. Well, that had disastrous consequences, this, his fear, his anxiety, his greed, his jealousy. He begins making these dehumanizing decisions. He, he, begins to, he completely robs them of their dignity. And Pharaoh isn't just a, and this is, what, this is so important, man, so important. Pharaoh isn't just a historical figure. He's a metaphor. He's a metaphor. He, he, he's a, any person, he's any culture who represents a way of life living without God as your primary God your primary master, your primary guide, I should say. You see, when we need, we, we, you need, like I need, no Pharaoh. You need no Pharaoh to feel enslaved. Do you see that? We ourselves and the culture we're steeped in are incredibly effective at ruthless slavery. Ruthless oppression. We make, I make my own ruthless taskmaster because of the things that I'm trying to live up to. The things that I worry about, whether it's impressing you or trying to secure my future because I, I fear, I fear what lies ahead. And I enslave myself. We enslave each other. By design, you see, we are ruled to, we are, we, we are designed in such a way that we, we worship. We just naturally Worship, And we are ruled by what we worship. And unfortunately, and sadly, and tragically, and I do this too, we so tend to worship what? Money. Careerism. Reputation. Image. Security. Comfort. These are the things. Self-gratification. Power. And we do so if you actually track it out, you trace it out, although we, barely, we rarely pay attention to it. We do it through exploiting or at the expense of other people. Our fears, our anxieties, our greeds, our jealousies, we pollute ourselves, we pollute our neighbors, and we pollute our earth. Pay attention. It's what we've been doing for a very long time. We need no pharaohs. We make good pharaohs ourselves. Oppressive pharaohism is alive and well today. It's why we're overly anxious Overwhelmed, restless, never content, judgmental, and defensive over our careers, our money, our parenting, our schools, our neighborhoods, and our reputations. I pieced this together from um, a great book called Seculosity by David Zoll. Here's what he writes. Religion is easier to rebrand than to extinguish. <laughs> This runs counter to popular perception. Bombarded with polls about declining levels of church attendance and belief in God, we assume that more and more people are abandoning faith and making their own meaning. But what these polls actually tell us is more straightforward. They tell us that confidence in the religious narratives we've inherited has collapsed. What they fail to report is that the marketplace and replacement religion is booming. We may be sleeping in on Sunday mornings in greater numbers, but we've never been more pious. Religious observance hasn't faded apace secularization so much as migrated, and we've got the anxiety to prove it. We're seldom not in church. Because religion is, in real life is more than a filter or paradigm. It is what we lean on to tell ourselves we're okay, that our lives matter. 
Another name for all the ladders we spend our days climbing toward, a dream of wholeness. It refers to our preferred guilt management systems. Our religion is that which we rely on, not just for meaning or hope, but for enoughness. Now listen, right? Listen carefully, and you'll hear that word everywhere, that word enough, especially when it comes to the anxiety, loneliness, exhaustion, and division that plague our moment to such tragic proportions. You'll hear about people scrambling to be successful enough, happy enough, thin enough, wealthy enough, influential enough, desired enough, charitable enough, woke enough, good enough. We believe instinctively that we, if we were to reach some benchmark in our minds, then value, vindication, and love would be ours. That if we got enough, we would be enough. But here's the wrinkle. One so well-worn, it hardly bears mentioning. No matter how close we get or how much we achieve, we never quite arrive at enough. Religion. We are super religious. Church attendance has nothing to do with it. We're uber-religious. We make religion out of anything. Our own internal guilt management systems, our own fearful nature of the uncertainty of life, our desperate need to be seen, loved, admired, leaves us burdened and bitter. Same way the ancient Israelites felt. And not because some of these desires are bad, by the way, right? Like, there's nothing, in many ways, these are, I've been hardwired, I think, by God. We are made in his image. These things are okay. It's just that they're never filled by these things. Like, there's not going to be enough money. There's not going to be enough likes. There's not going to be enough security to calm you down. At what point will you get it? Not get it in your brain, but have enough security. Therefore, all these unmet desires, our lack of contentment, our constant restlessness, our workaholism, right? Our restless worry causes us to dehumanize ourselves and our neighbors who are all made in the image of God, no matter their class or color, culture, or religious preference. We just dehumanize people. We dehumanize ourselves. It is in vain that you rise early eating the bread of anxious toil. That's what the psalmist says. Why do you do it to yourself? The problem is as old as Egypt. The sin in ourselves, we make good, we make great pharaohs. Exodus 1 says life without God always leads to oppression and slavery. Always. It's in me, it's in you. That's a bad news. This is a bad news, good news story. Bad news, good news situation. The bad news is we are facing a long battle against this, a long, intimidating battle. Now, the world has and continues to be desperately sick. The Bible talks about it as a curse. The, Bible, the world is under a curse. And the other truth is that God's people are consistently portrayed as foreigners. That's a continual, continual motif, theme in the scriptures, and that being a prominent one in the book of Exodus. Uh, meaning that we're always going to long for a better country. I mean, you don't think of yourself as a foreigner uh, because you're like, well, what do you mean? I was born here. I'm American. It's like, no, 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 no. According to the Bible, you take up this life of discipleship. The Bible says you are a foreigner, a stranger. This isn't your place. This isn't your home. This isn't your country. You're always longing for something that you can't quite make sense of. Lewis wrote about this extensively. 
And so we're always going to feel this out-of-placeness. And that's a major theme in Exodus that the, the Bible wants to put into your heart, that you carry this kind of dual citizenship. It's just always out of your grasp. The world as it is works against God. And if you are one of God's, then you feel it. It's working against the grain. And so the truth is this. God's care and concern to fix it all and to fix what's broken in me, what, to fix what's broken in you, it, it, we're being told that he cares, but it's often very inconspicuous and slow. Yeah, bedtime the other day, my, both my kids, uh, two truths were spoken with such veracity, they pierced my heart with both pain and hope. Uh, my oldest, Ruby, um, who is often scared of things in the dark, was sharing some of these fears with me. And so I um, discussed praying with her as per usual, which as per usual was met with an eye roll because that's what pastor's kids do. They just, here we go again. My younger one who was in the room picked up on a bit of this conversation, this God talk. She picked on, up on this from a distance while she's fidgeting with her stuffed animals and says, Jesus, just Jesus, right? And I said, yes, yes, that is somewhat right, I suppose. We are having a discussion about talking to Jesus. And she says, he's in here. He's in here. He's right in here. Right, Daddy? And I said, oh, yes. I'm, I'm raising deep theologians in my house. <laughs> and she pointed to her chest with a big smile on her face, my older one frowning like, you're interrupting. And then the older one then says, yeah, 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 I know. I know. He's in here. But I still am scared. And so I said, well, what do you mean? And she says, well, I, 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 I know. I know about that, and I know about prayer. But, you know, sometimes it just doesn't work. Right? And so like a veteran Christian and like a veteran pastor, I, I rushed in to fix it as opposed to just sit with the pain of it. And I said, well, do you have a prayer, like a go-to prayer? Like a go-to prayer that, that, that goes from the heart to the lips, as easy as breathing. She says, no, I don't, I don't have one. And I said, well, I do. I do. So we rehearsed Psalm 4 together, or a portion of it. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you, O Lord, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. But then she said, Dad, sometimes I pray and nothing happens. I wake, I'm still awake and I'm still scared. What else do I do? Right? Deeper theology could not have been discussed. That's my point. See, you are in one sense are connected to God. You have union with Christ. The Bible talks about this. Paul would say in Galatians 2, right? He would describe it as I, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 
The life I now live in the flesh, I live for the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. But (laughs) the other side of that coin is that to say as a Christian that you won't suffer or that you won't wait, wait for long periods of time to look for an answer or a response or a semblance of God's care or concern, to say that you won't have to endure that would be a lie. You would. You will. This is the tension of Exodus 1, right there at the beginning that we just read. You are reading the tension of that. 400 years they were in slavery. This is the tension that they lived in. This is the tension of your life if you believe and are trying to be loyal to God. But like I said, there's, there's good news here. And this brings us to the second lesson. This is the second lesson I want you to learn is this, that God sees our oppression. He sees that suffering. He sees the slavery, and he deeply cares. It's just that care is seldom fast, flashy, or even recognizable at times. See, scholars have noted the theological significance of God's apparent absence in chapters 1 and 2 of Exodus, at least until you get to the very end where we, that we didn't read. The human feeling that God seems absent in our daily affairs is a prominent theme in the Bible, especially in the Psalms and the Proverbs, or uh, sorry, the prophets and the wisdom literature. You'll see it coming up over and over and over again. Now, it's interesting, and I, and I kind of noted this, but it's interesting to think, not totally soothing, albeit, that none of the slavery uh, should be unexpected for the reader, for the careful reader of the Bible from Genesis through. None of this should be totally unexpected for, for you. Um, If you turn back to Genesis 15, 13, and 14, you'll read God explicitly explained to Abraham, this is going to take place. Your descendants will suffer in slavery in a foreign land, but I'll bring them out. So God God knew beforehand. It's not as as if when this Pharaoh comes onto the scene and is like, I don't like these Israelites. I'm going to enslave them. It's not as God is on his throne saying, what? I mean, he, he, he predicted this. He let Abraham know this at the very beginning. You can read it, like I said, Genesis 15. So we're meant to realize, as the reader, as you're reading this story, you're meant to realize that God is not actually absent at all. And for them, in real time, they're wondering what's going on, but God is not actually absent or indifferent to their suffering or struggle. Sometimes our struggle absolutely, our oppression, our, our, our slavery, our consequences are the result of our own Selfishness. There's just things we do, and we go, oh, man, there's consequences to that decision. But sometimes it's not. And there's no, there's no real answer. Like, why, why have I ended up in this situation where I feel so oppressed? Either way, God cares deeply. Either way, God is not absent. And he just, the reality is, and th- this is what Exodus will continue to point out, He moves in the shadows, and he moves in the small ways, in the small people. He prefers deliverance that's subtle. He prefers deliverance and saving that's subversive. That's why I think the Bible wants you to show you over and over and over again, salvation doesn't come through you. It's through the Lord alone. The opening chapters of Exodus show us a hidden love, a hidden wisdom, a hidden cleverness of God, that to me is just utterly breathtaking. And I hope that you could see it and you can grasp it. 
God needs no army to do his work, his saving work. He moves in these undetected little ways. And in this case, in the first chapter, if you noticed and you read carefully, in this way, he uses women. Midwives, toddlers, moms, and princesses. Did you see that? There's a theme. The midwives, you know, in paranoia, this Pharaoh begins this calculated work of genocide on these Hebrew sons. And with all the weight of the world thrown at these midwives, they defy the order. No, we're not going to kill them. We seek the dignity in these babies, regardless of their ethnicity. Many scholars believe they're not Hebrew, they're Egyptian midwives. Because it wouldn't make sense for a pharaoh to go to Hebrew women and say, kill your own babies. So he grabs Egyptian women and he says, here, you nurses, you, you, go, kill. When they come out and they're a boy, take them to the trough, drown them. And these Egyptian women, for whatever reason, are like, I I can't do that. And so they lie and they get blessed for it. How's that for scripture? They feared God, the text says, more than Pharaoh. Second, you have Moses' own mother who's brave enough to hide him and then in despair push him in a little basket down the river. You have Pharaoh's own daughter, his own daughter, who happens upon Moses crying. And even though her own father has declared the Hebrews to be enemies and slaves, what's the text say? She took pity on him. And then you have Moses' little sister. She had to have been little. Later we read her name is Miriam. Little sister who is brave enough to follow her brother down the river, and she's brave enough to approach the princess of Egypt and then concoct a nursing plan so that he ends back up in the arms of his own mom, at least for a time, until he's weaned. And then he is weaned, and he's adopted and raised up by the Egyptian princess in Pharaoh's own palace. All these little details are telling you something, very subtly, very quietly almost. It's not just that God's work at delivering his own people and saving them through what feels like prolonged pain, right? It's not just that he's, he, he's doing that, but his work is small, it's ordinary, it's unexpected. It's like, he put, it's like God prefers to put his mercies, his angels, in little people right under your nose, right where you won't see it, right where you won't anticipate it. It's the mystery of God's deliverance, always active but rarely seen. How interesting. How interesting. Stop, think about this for a moment. I've been fascinated with this all week. How interesting is it that God doesn't eliminate the Nile. Pharaoh is saying, okay, drown them all. Take all of you. I, 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 I now deputize every single one of you as citizens to go and grab these children and drown them in the river. And God doesn't eliminate the Nile, the river. No, no, no. Nope. He uses the Nile against Pharaoh. The brilliance of this. He used the Nile to float his own salvation right to Pharaoh's doorstep. I mean, come on. It's beautiful. The Nile was a weapon for Pharaoh, so God looked at it and said, okay, I'll make it a gift. 
That's how I work. I'll use, it, I'll use it to subvert your own plan. Exodus 1 and 2 shows the paradox of God's work in us. That which defeats us is often, very often, the very thing God uses to draw you out. The very thing that, undo, the very thing that just humiliates you, the very thing that you think, I can't, I can't take any more of this. And God says, that's going to be the very thing that I will use to deliver you, to save you, to wake you up. The point I'm making here is, if you're still tracking with me, is this story doesn't just teach us the clever work of God. It's foreshadowing the character of God, the continual character of God. The genocidal plan and ironic twist of fate just deepens our attention, I think, to the gospel, to the story of Jesus, to what it means to you. When you get, when you get much, much further into the book and you, get, you come across Jesus and you see the work of the cross, you're able to go, oh, this is a pattern. This isn't a one-off. Think about this. Jesus doesn't just eliminate the pain of our suffering, which isn't Egypt anymore, right? It's our sin and death. He absorbs it. He absorbs it into himself. You see, like the enemy of the world thought, I'll use a cross. I'll use these people, these Romans. Yeah, they make this thing the cross. It's horrible and humiliating and excruciating, and we execute people on it. And God doesn't eliminate the cross. He uses the cross. It's the same pattern. It's the same thing. The enemy thought, I'll use the cross and defeat the goodness of God. I'll defeat the goodness of God's creation. And God said, well, I'll surrender to the cross and die on it and give life and freedom. Wink. It's God's beautiful, clever, unbelievable work that no one can see coming. There is no power or evil that gets the best of God. None, period. It's just slow and often inconspicuous and very weak-looking at times. And so, as we come to the table this morning, as we come to the Lord's table, this, this bread representing Jesus' body broken for us, this, this cup of wine, his blood shed for us, this ritual that that we take part in weekly to remind us of this, remind us of the subversive salvation, the work that God has done on our behalf. We proclaim God's character and power even when we're overwhelmed with painful circumstances. That's what we do when we come to the table. But before you come up, I don't know the particular ways that this story and the Spirit of God might speak to you. I, I, I don't know. There are many things. I don't, and I certainly didn't cover everything. I, I don't know what previous notions of God's character you've been carrying from childhood or, or currently with your circumstances, but God is not ignoring the pain points in your life. And, and it's the pain that wakes us up. It's the pain that causes us to cry out. We didn't read it, but at the end, the Israelites begin to cry out. It says in verse 23, their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, and God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God knew. So even when the circumstances make it, make it seem as though he is silent, God surely hasn't forgotten you. And so I would just leave you with this as you come to the table. Have you groaned lately? I think there's an awful lot of us that have, but I think there's an awful lot of us that life is so comfortable, we have forgotten what it's like to groan before God. We have forgotten what it's like to just pray about how we feel out of place and that we long for something better. 
And let us learn the importance and the significance of learning to live and soak in the tension that God is not absent, but sometimes it sure is a long waiting period. Lamentations 3 says, It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Why would it say that? Why would it say that it is good for you to wait for the salvation of the Lord quietly? There's something about trust there that I would consider you to consider. There is something about like a child sitting calmly, trusting that their parent is going to return. There's something so loving and so impressive about that. I envy that. I want that in my own life. I want it for you. So if you're a Christian, if you are one who proclaims Jesus as Lord, you're encouraged to come part, take part, taking the piece of the bread and dipping it in the wine or the juice, whichever your conscience permits. Please do not do that in an unworthy manner. Take the time to reflect. Take the time to confess. And then take part. We love you. We're glad that you're here. Let's pray. Father, we love you this morning. We give you thanks. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the gift of this story. Thank you for the history of salvation. Thank you that you see us. You see the groans. You see the sighs. You see the pain. You see the loss. Teach us to wait with trust, with a faith that's patient, with a faith that's kind to our neighbor in the midst of our pain. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for the sacrifices and the service that he has participated in on our behalf. May we look to you, God, this week. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.